As the kids are making their way, if you want to turn with me in your Bibles to Esther chapter 2, we will continue on in our study through Esther chapter 2, and, and we'll, we'll prayerfully get through chapter 3 as well. So, Let's pray for, I should have done this before the kids left, but let's pray for the kids and pray for the teachers and pray for this morning. Lord, we thank you so much for the teachers. We thank you so much for them giving up their time, their energy, their effort to watching our kids. Uh, Lord, I pray that you have your hand upon them. Be with the kids. Um, just let them have open ears, open hearts, and open minds to what you have to say. Father, I pray that you be with us this morning and let us hear from you. Let us have open ears, open hearts, and open minds to what you have to say through this book. We thank you in your son's name. Amen. Amen. We're continuing on in our, in our study through the book of Esther. Last week, we, we started off and we did a bit of history. We did a, a bit of an introduction, um, and we dove into chapter one. And, and really, the, the theme of the book is the providence of God, or really the the uh, God working through all things in the background and orchestrating them, not, not uh, you know, overriding our free will, but certainly guiding all things into His perfect will. And we set the stage with King uh, Ahasuerus, or, or better known as King Xerxes. He has, um, you know, he had a big feast, a big party, and Queen Vashti also had a big feast. And King uh, Ahasuerus, as he's known in the book of Esther, uh, called for Vashti to come and, and present herself before everyone in this party, and she didn't want to. And so that upset King Ahasuerus, and so basically he dethroned her as queen, kind of cast her aside, and now we come to the end of chapter one, and as we get to chapter two, there's really about three years or so in between chapter, really as we get to the end of chapter two, about four years, three to four years in between those chapters. And it's believed that the Battle of Thermopylae, uh, or as I said last week, I don't necessarily recommend it, but if you've seen the movie, The 300, that's what that movie is based on, where King Xerxes comes and he attacks the Greeks. And it's believed that it takes that takes place between chapter one and chapter two. And really chapter one was all this feast to get the Persian lords or the Persian rulers all together to say, let's go fight the Greeks. And so we come to chapter 2, and so Queen Vashti is off the throne. King uh, Ahasuerus has gone to battle with the Greeks, and he wins that battle of the 300 or against uh, Leonidas and his Spartans, but they end up losing the war against the Greeks. And so he returns back to Persia, sort of defeated and deflated, and looking for some... Um, solitude or some compassion, if you will, and that's where we pick up in chapter 2 of Esther. Let's read. After these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's servants who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan, 
the citadel, into the women's quarters under the custody of Haggai, Haggai, the king's eunuch, custodian of the women, and let beauty preparations be given them. Then let the young women who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This thing pleased the king, and he did so. And so we see that the king Ahasuerus is is sad. He's looking for his queen. He remembers Vashti, but she's not there. And so I find it intriguing to think historically what has just happened. And that's why I kind of set the stage that way, because it reminds me of Proverbs 21, verse 1 and 2. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord like rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. This is not to mean that God has forced Ahasuerus to, uh, you know, do these things. He hasn't necessarily pushed Ahasuerus to get rid of Vashti, but it doesn't mean that God approves of the king's actions, like having two harems and all of these things. It simply means that God is the, the, uh, the orchestrator of putting things in place so that his purpose can be accomplished. I know this is a bit of a, a silly analogy, but I'll, I'll, it helps me kind of understand how this orchestrates things, as I think it's a little bit like my kids and dealing with them, because we are God's children, and we may not like to be referred that way, but we are His kids. But I see it in the sense that when my kids are doing something that I don't necessarily want them to, or they're doing something that I think they should be doing something else, obviously when they're little, I just tell them, don't, and get them out of there. But as they're growing, and especially with Jade as she's getting older, I try to put options and things in front of her to guide her in a direction, not to manipulate her, but to give her that decision-making process to help her develop the thinking of her own mind so that she can come to the conclusion that I'm wanting to. And as I said, I know this is a silly analogy and it's limited in its capacity because, one, we are not God. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, that we are not like Him. We are not Him. But it is similar in that sense. And so I think God has set up uh, the, the, that feast. He's allowed King Ahasuerus to have that feast. He's allowed them to go to battle, but then ultimately he's also allowed King Ahasuerus to be defeated so that he could come back licking his wounds, trying to figure out what to do, as well as get on with moving to the plan of saving God's people. Notice it's interesting that there's no Queen Vashti He has a harem full of women, and yet he still wants companionship. He doesn't want physical relations here. So the king is pondering about Vashti, and we can see he's thinking about the consequences of his actions. He's thinking about, man, I have gotten rid of my queen, and now I don't know what to do. And I, and I wonder if the people that helped him dethrone Queen Vashti are the ones that actually propose this plan. I wonder if it's Memukin from chapter 1 that brought this about, let's find another queen, so that way Queen Vashti doesn't come back on the scene and deal with Memukin or any of the other officials. But they encourage him, as we read, to hold a beauty contest for a new queen. According to the historians, the Persians traditionally were supposed to choose a wife from the seven royal families. 
although this wasn't always adhered to, that could be one of the few reasons why Mordecai and Esther tried to keep their nationality a secret. Um, there are other options, and we'll talk about those as we go through. But as we see, this is not a normal beauty contest. Now, yes, the prettiest girl was sought throughout the, the kingdom, and they were all gathered up to come and present themselves to the king, but the parents had no say in it. The parents virtually were, were rendered, you know, unable to do anything because it was on command of the king to take any of the pretty women to the king. They probably, the parents would never see their daughters again. Now, arranged marriages were the norm back then, but this was more of the king demanding these women than an agreement between the parents and the king. Also, the ladies will see they end up spending one night with the king, and he would determine whether he liked them or not, and if he didn't like them, they would go to another harem, and then they would be there perpetually in loneliness for the rest of their lives. One commentator said it was as if they were in perpetual widowum or, or being a widow because they could not marry someone else because technically in the Persian law they have been married to the king, and they would be living in loneliness forever, as well as all the other ladies that were rejected by the king. So this wasn't something that people were necessarily looking forward to. This wasn't something that was, yes, this is, you know, Queen Esther is the beauty pageant queen. She is princess of Persia. No, it was something that was a bit dreaded, so to speak. But we are finally introduced to two main characters, Mordecai and Esther, in verse 5. In Shushan the citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shemai, the son of Kish, a, a Benjamite. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been captured with Jehoiachin, or sorry, Jehoiahin, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. When her father and mother died, Mordecai had, uh, had took her as his own daughter. So it was when the king's command and decree were heard, and when many young women were gathered at Shushan, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, that Esther was taken to the king's palace into the care of Haggai, the custodian of the women. Now the young woman pleased him, and she obtained his favor, so he readily gave beauty preparations to her besides her allowance. Then seven choice maidservants were provided for her from the king's palace, and he moved her and her maidservants to the best place in the house of the women. Esther had not revealed her people or family, for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it, and every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. And as I said, we're finally introduced to two main characters here, Mordecai and Esther. 
Mordecai, the, the name Mordecai is related to a Babylonian name or word. And, and in some manuscripts, the, the historical manuscripts, there's this mention of this man named Morduka, Mordukai, and, and basically it's referred to him as an accountant in between the, the reign of Darius and the reign of Xerxes. Some people believe this is the same Mordecai of the book of Esther. Whether that's true or not, we're not entirely sure, but we do know that this Mordecai of Esther is from the tribe of Babylon. Or sorry, not the tribe of Babylon, the tribe of Benjamin. <laughs> sorry, different, different tribe, slightly different. But he's from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, his relative, Kish, was carried away into Babylonian captivity. And, and Kish, it would seem that he was taken in the second wave of captivity. If you remember the history that we went through, there were three waves. The first wave, Daniel and his partners were, were taken away. Then the second wave, Ezekiel was taken as well as Kish. And then finally, the third wave was when the destruction of the temple was, was taken place. Uh, was done. The point, though, is that the first two waves of captivity were predominantly wealthy and prestigious families. And so it would seem that Mordecai comes from or has a heritage of a wealthy and prestigious family back in the time pre-captivity. But notice Mordecai is mentioned here as a Jew. The grammar is actually in the third person, and it would seem to indicate that the author was not a Jew or at the very least, the author is distancing himself or themselves from the Jews. Again, potentially indicating that some of this was taken from the Persian history books. Either way, we see this will, the, the fact that Mordecai is a Jew will come uh, important as we meet Haman in the next chapter. But then we're also introduced to Mordecai's cousin, who is Esther, the namesake of the book. We're not told what happened to her parents in, in this version. It says that they died. Uh, her name, Esther, means star. Hadassah, it means uh, myrtle. Uh, many people believe it's related to the myrtle tree, and it's connected to the flower that's on the myrtle tree, and it's in the shape of the star. Either way, we see that Mordecai takes his cousin in as his own child. He raises her up. He, he takes care of her. He gives her everything that she needs to become the woman that ultimately saves her people. Mordecai, we're not told about his family either. We're not told whether his mom and dad are around. We're not told whether he was even married. We're simply given the understanding that he takes Esther as his own child. But now we see in verse 8 the process that they begin to go through for a new queen. As we read, the king's command goes out, and many young women were gathered at Shushan the citadel under the custody of this man, Haggai, that Esther was also taken. It's interesting, that word there, taken, it means to receive, but it also means to take away. There is the idea that Esther didn't go straight or immediately to the harem or to uh, captivity, if you will. It could be that Mordecai was trying to protect her, hold her back, maybe even hiding her. Either way, the word taken gives the understanding that she was taken without her consent or without her desire, as well as without Mordecai's consent, meaning there's an element of force. 
So when she's taken, there's no mention of her refusing or putting up a fuss because I think she had no say regardless. There's not even a mention of her trying to stand up. There's no mention of her trying to be different. And I think of Daniel and how when he was taken into captivity, he did things slightly different. He refused portions of food. He made a stand. He prayed when he wasn't supposed to. Whereas we see Esther, she takes a slightly different tactic, and she tries to blend in. She tries to not upset the Persian customs, so to speak, as much as possible. Regardless of her actions, regardless of comparing her to Daniel or not, we see, I believe, the Lord's hand in this all. Because notice, she wins favor with Haggai, the guy who is ruling over or in charge of the, the harem that she is at at this point in time. It says that he gave her the best place. He gave her seven servants. And we see that Esther is now beginning to win favor with everyone that she comes in contact. And I think that's the author's subtle way of, again, pointing us to the providence of God. Again, pointing to the fact that God is in control, even if she was taken without her consent, taken without Mordecai's consent, even if they didn't desire, wish, or choose this course of action, God has his hand upon Esther. Notice with me, read <clears throat> verse 10. Esther had not re revealed her people or family, for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. And every day Mordecai paced in front of the, court, of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. Each woman, or sorry, each young woman's turn came to the, to go into the king Ahasuerus, and she had, uh, after she had completed twelve months' preparation according to the regulations for the women, for thus were the days of their preparation uh, apportioned: six months with oil of myrrh, six months of with perfumes, and preparations for beautifying the women. Thus prepared, each young woman went to the king, and she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the women's quarters to the king's palace. In the evening she went in, and in the morning she returned to the second house of the women to the, custom, uh, to the custody of Shagahaz, or Shahags, the king's eunuch who kept the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and called her by name. Now, when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter to go into the king, she requested nothing but what Haggai, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the women, advised. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which was the month of Tebeth. In the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So she set, sorry, so he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. The king made a, a great feast, the feast of Esther, for all of all his officials and servants, and he proclaimed a holiday in the in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of the king. We come to the time of Esther and 
and we, um, we see that she is now taken. She goes into the king, but before she does, she's given, all the women were given this opportunity to uh, take whatever they wanted from that harem. They could take all the, all the beautiful clothes, the jewels, the, the perfume, the makeup, whatever they wanted, they had the opportunity to take it to better win the favor of the king. Now, Esther, she chose not to take anything except for what Haggai had recommended. She saw he knew what the king liked, therefore she listened to him. Notice in, in, that Esther was taken into the king in the seventh year of his reign. This is about four years after chapter 1. But if you remember, we just read, there was six months of preparation with the oil of myrrh and six months of preparation with the perfumes and, uh, and preparations. Uh, that just seems really odd to me. But anyways, um, again, oppression of the, of the ladies. Thank you that we don't have to do that anymore. And anyways, enough said. That means that she spent a year in all of these preparations. And so that means that she was taken three years after chapter one. Again, as I said it before, it's believed that the battle between the Persians and the Greek took place in those, sorry, the Greeks in, took place in those years. Now, during this time, this, this beautification and whatnot to Esther, she didn't reveal her nationality to anyone. She kept it a secret, and, and she obeyed Mordecai because he's the one that had told her, don't tell anybody. And again, this comes important later as we get to the uh, few chapters down the line because once Esther does reveal her nationality, that's when Haman is dealt with. But we see in verse 15 that Esther wins the heart of the king. And I don't think this was the king falling in love with simple emotion because we see he's given many women. So I don't think he's just necessarily won over because she's beautiful. I think he truly does love her. It's kind of interesting that the king, uh, you know, he, he doesn't ask a, a background check of Esther. He doesn't run a police vetting with her. You know, you think if you're going to marry someone, you're going to want to know them. But again, times were different. Um, we see here the king gives a celebration. Literally, this is a ceasing or sorry, a causing to rest. Some believe that there was a release of taxes or even a release of slaves. Either way, there was a time of celebration. The king wanted everyone to be happy as he was when he married Esther, much like when people get married today. We want to rejoice and celebrate, and there seems to be a lot of weddings these days going on, right, and preparations, and we should be excited. But we see here, as I said, I think the Lord is continuing to move His people into place. We, we saw chapter 1, that was the setting of the scene of King Ahasuerus removing, dethroning Vashti, setting the scene so that now Esther could take the throne, as well as Mordecai. We're going to read another story that's very important in just a minute. But I like how one commentator said this. He said, Joseph, going all the way back to Genesis, Joseph's leadership meant that food for his famine-stricken family and eventual the prosperity of his people. Daniel's leadership led to new status of acceptance of Jews in Babylon. Esther's leadership would yield similar results. The common element between all three of these people that were taken captive is that God is the one who brought these results. If you think about that, you have Joseph, you have Daniel, and you have Esther, all three of them taken without their desire, put into a situation that they didn't want, and yet God's hand was upon all of them, proving he was in control. 
we come to verse 19. When the virgins <clears throat> were gathered together a second time, Mordecai sat within the king's gate. Now Esther had not revealed her family and her people just as Mordecai had charged her. For Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai as when she was brought up with him. In those days when Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthan and Turish, doorkeepers became furious and sought to lay hands on the king Ahasuerus. So the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. And when, the, when an inquiry, inquiry was made into the matter, matter, it was confirmed, and both were hanged on the gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Now, this phrase in verse 19, the virgins gathered a second time, is a bit confusing. It's confusing because is this a flashback to the time before Esther was queen, or is this a, a time of when Esther was queen, and now they're parading these ladies around to contrast their beauty to Esther's beauty? And it's hard to tell, and honest. I don't think it actually matters to the narrative of the story because regardless, we see the focal point of the, the author's reason for saying this is that Mordecai is in the gate. He's in the gate of the city, and that actually was a place of prominence. It was a place of prestige. It meant that he actually had an official place within the, the Persian Empire or a, an official position. He had some sort of authority. It is interesting, though, to think that if this was a flashback to the time before Esther was, was queen, it gives us a bit of understanding as to how he could communicate with her daily without raising suspicion. Because if you remember, he paced daily to see how she was doing in front of the court of Haggai, or, um, Haggai the, the, the king's eunuch. Uh, or, and so it would be interesting that if he had this official capacity, he was sitting at the gate, it gave him that ability to go to this place on some sort of official business without raising suspicion. But if it was after Queen Esther or after she had become queen, it is possible that she gave him this position. She's the one that allowed him to have this high royal position, but it also, again, gives an understanding as to how he could come in contact with the queen and yet not raise suspicion to her or her heritage. It was, could be done on, a, on an official basis, if you will. All this to say, not to focus on the human element of things, but to remind us of God's hand working in the background. Now, the closing sentence of this chapter, I believe, is important because the king has his chroniclers, his, his uh, men furiously writing down various events, and, and the king has them write down this event that Mordecai witnesses or testifies to a, a, a group of people that wanted to overthrow the king. Now, we're not told why these two men wanted to overthrow the king. Could have been because he had dethroned Vashti, and so they were Vashti supporters, or it could have been they thought because he lost the, the, the Greek wars he, that he needed to be overthrown. We're not told. We could speculate all day. But we are told that he writes down and remembers, or to remember, Mordecai and the actions that he took. But what's interesting is the king forgets. 
He writes these things down. He, he wants to remember them, but he forgets to reward Mordecai. Again, we're not told why, but I would speculate that it was God removing that from his memory because it will come to play later in the book. I don't know about you guys, but I know at times I have forgotten a couple of things, one or two things I have forgotten. And I know I can't, the things that I have forgotten, I, I would like to blame it on the Lord that I've forgotten those things, but I don't think we should. But have we ever been put into a position or a place where we've done something worthy of notability, something that was, you know, good, and we thought, yes, we're going to get that promotion, yes, we're going to get that reward, we're going to get the bonus, and then we miss out? And what do we do? I know me, I, I, I never whinge, I never complain, I never text the boss, where's that promotion, right? We don't do those things. Maybe the Lord has wanted that to happen and be forgotten so that it could come up later in time, and it would be useful later in time. I know things are a bit different. We're not necessarily worrying about the safety of our people, but th let's think of that providence of the Lord. The Lord is in these things. When I was younger, I used to think I'd be sitting in a, in a in a meeting or something and playing with a, with a ball or kind of, you know, fidgeting before fidget spinners kind of a thing. And, and all of a sudden, the ball would drop and roll out of my hand or the, the pen would drop. And I'd think, oh, man, that's the Lord right there. He doesn't want me to click that pen anymore. Or and I know that's a bit silly, but, and, and that's too far to the extreme, but have we had something happen to us? Have we, have we been put into a situation that we think, Lord, this is unjust. Lord, this is not right. Lord, we should stand up and whatever it is, let them be known the good deeds that I have done. But in reality, let's, maybe God wants it to be forgotten. Maybe He wants to bring it about later in time. I would encourage us to hold back. I would encourage us to let, that, let the Lord bring that reward to mind. Let us, let, let, let us rely on God being our vindicator, our judge, the one who will bring it forth. It closes out chapter 2, and we jump to chapter 3, and we come to be introduced to Haman, the, uh, the villain, if you will, of this story. Chapter 3, verse 1, it says, After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadath, the Agite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman. So, for so the king had commanded concerning him, but Mordecai would not bow down, sorry, would not bow or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? Now it happened when they spoke to him daily, he would not listen to them that they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for Mordecai had, set, had told them that he was a Jew. Now, this is about five years after chapter two, so that puts it about nine years after chapter one. So, Queen, Queen Esther has been on the throne, so to speak, for about five years now at this point in time. And, and whatever has gone on in the background, we're not told, but for some reason, the king likes this man, Haman, and raises him up into power, basically making him second in command of the, the, the empire, the Persian empire. 
Some historians have referred to King Xerxes or, or King Ahasuerus as the, a puppet king, that he simply just went along with a lot of what his officials uh, would say. And so it's possible that he enjoyed the company of Haman, he enjoyed what he had to do, and even found a bit of like-mindedness, and so he let him choose and gave him this authority. But we see Haman has a bit of an interesting background. There's a bit of a debate as to where he comes from. He could have come from a, a place in the empire called Agag, which is the name there. But many people believe that he is actually a descendant of King Agag, who is of the Amalekites, uh, all the way back to 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 8. And if you go all the way back to Exodus chapter 17, verse 8, it tells us how the Amalekites came and they fought against Israel. And because they fought against Israel when they were leaving Egypt, trying to get to the promised land, God declared war against the Amalekites for generations, he said. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 18 even explains in a bit more detail that Amalek brought his people up against the rear guard of the Israelites and were attacking the weak and defenseless as the Israelites were trying to flee into the promised land. And so it paints a, bigger, a, bit, a bit of a bigger picture in that the Amalekites were not nice people. First, Jam, First Samuel chapter 15, Samuel the prophet tells King Saul that the Lord wants Saul to kill and wipe out all the Amalekites to be done with them. Their time is finished. Saul actually doesn't listen and he saves this king, King Agag. And that's when Saul begins to lose his kingdom and we see, I believe, that Haman is a descendant of this king. And it's interesting to think that King Saul was a Benjamite who did not destroy the Amalekites, and yet we see that Mordecai is also a, of the tribe of Benjamin, and he saves his people from a descendant of the Amalekite. It's interesting history and background, but what's interesting also is that Esther is a part of a, a group of, of books in the Old Testament called the Writings or the Scrolls. And along with Esther, we have Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Lamentations, and Ruth. And during the, the Feast of Purim, or Purim, the, uh, the book of Esther would be read out loud in the synagogue. And every time Haman's name would be read, the people that are listening would stamp their feet and say, may his name be blot out. So from now on, every time we read, no, I'm just kidding, we won't do that. I'm going to get a, good of a, a bit of participation, right? No. Now, we see that Haman rises to power. He is now in great authority, and the king makes a command that everyone has to pay him homage. Everyone has to bow down and give him honor and respect. What's interesting is that Mordecai chooses not to. He decides not to bow down to Haman, and we're not given explicit reasons why. Soon Mordecai will, will see as the story goes on, he actually replaces Haman when Haman is killed. So I think Mordecai didn't necessarily have a problem with bowing down to Persian officials because at the very least, he will have to bow down to the king in some form or fashion. It could be, though, that because of Haman's heritage, Mordecai didn't want to bow down. That if he was a descendant of Amalek and a descendant of the king Agag, Mordecai refused to bow down to someone who God had declared war on 
for generations. And so, Haman and Mordecai are at odds. And this issue now gets under the skin of Haman. The other officials at the gate begin to question Mordecai. So it would seem that Haman doesn't even notice. The gate was quite large, and this was a a big business area, so there were a lot of officials there. And so when Haman would come through, people would bow down, and Mordecai could be off to the side, and Haman wouldn't even notice. But the officials begin to question Mordecai, and they, they, they would say, why are you transgressing the king's command? It's almost as if they were saying, don't do this to honor Haman, do it to honor the king. Do it because the king is commanded. Who cares who Haman is? Do it for who the king has said. But he refuses. The only thing Mordecai tells the officials is that he's a Jew. So the only indication that we have is that it has something to do with Mordecai's heritage, either for religious purposes or heritage purposes. We're not entirely sure. Now, we should mention that I don't think that the Jews would have been breaking the second commandment by bowing down to the officials. If you look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 4 to 6, it talks about the the Ten Commandments, and specifically the, the second commandment is not having idols and bowing down to them. Because one commentator put it this way, Abraham bowed down to the sons of Heth in negotiation for Sarah's uh, burial place in Genesis 23. Joseph, uh, Joseph's brothers bowed down to him, Joseph, because they thought he was an Egyptian official in Genesis 42. David bowed down to Saul in 1 Samuel 24. Jacob and his family bowed down to Esau in Genesis 33. And the Jews even bowed down to one another in 2 Samuel 14. All this to say, it wasn't necessarily a religious element. It probably had more to do with the heritage. No matter what, Haman is furious. He's ready to kill Mordecai, but he doesn't want to just kill Mordecai. He wants to wipe out the Jews altogether. So, Haman's plot in verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage, Haman was filled with wrath, but he was disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews and were throughout and who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. First month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is the lot, before Haman to determine the day and the month until it fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there's a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom." We go on and we, we read that he confronts the king, puts in a word. But notice, he casts lot. And that word there, lot, it's a Babylonian word, which really just means dice or, or pebbles or sticks. And basically, it was used, these instruments were used to determine the, the will of the gods, if you will. In Ezekiel 21, 21, it talks about how Nebuchadnezzar cast lots. He was at a, at a fork in the road. Does he go and destroy Jerusalem or does he go and attack Egypt? And he cast lots to decide which way he wanted to go. 
There are records of the Persians and other rulers casting lots at the beginning of the year to decide on should they go to battle that year or should they not? Should they do these things or should they not? All of this would seem to paint a picture of why Haman was doing what he was doing. He was trying to seek out the will of his gods as when he should kill the Jews. Notice in verse 8, he begins to ask permission of the king Ahasuerus. He doesn't name the Jews. He actually leaves that bit out. But what's even worse than that is that the king doesn't ask who the people were. He, Haman comes up and he says, there's this people in your land that are very naughty. We should get rid of them. The king says, go for it. Whatever you need to do, do it. Haman tells a, a bunch of half-truths to the king. The Israelites were spread across the empire. They did have different rules than the Persians. But what's interesting to think about is that if they were as evil and seditious as Haman makes them sound, the king would have heard of the Jews long before Haman was even around, and he would have dealt with them before that. All this reminds me of Proverbs 18, verse 13. He who answers a matter before he hears it is folly and shame to him. The king was eager to be pleased or eager to please those around him, and so he simply gave Haman whatever he wanted. He didn't inquire as to these people. He simply said, go for it, and ultimately he will be shamed. Notice, though, the decree is made. The messengers are sent out. Translations are given. And the, there's, remember, there's 127 provinces, so there's at least 127 different languages, not to mention the different dialects that they would have had to translate into. So this was not a small venture by any means. But then notice the final line in this chapter says this, the couriers went out in haste uh, hastened by the king's command, and the decree was proclaimed in Shushan, the citadel. So the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Shushan was perplexed. It's interesting to me that the king and Haman ultimately sit down to have a glass of wine and enjoy the company of one another after they've decreed a nation, a people group, could be killed. They, the whole city of Shushan is perplexed, it says. The word there, perplexed, it means to wander around. It means to walk around without any uh, end point or any destination in mind. I mean, we've all seen, <laughs> most of the time it's whenever I'm walking through the grocery store, perplexed, wondering, what am I supposed to get? That's what the, the people of Shushan were doing. They were walking around not knowing what to do or where to go because of this decree. Now, it would seem that it was not just the Jews that were confused, but it was also the non-Jews that were confused. They were, I think they were confused because if this decree could be made against this one particular people group, it could be made against any people group the king wanted. I'd like to invite Christine back up and the worship team as we begin to close. But some questions, I believe, are raised surrounding Queen Esther and Mordecai. And they don't, because notice, they don't reveal their nationality until their hand is forced. Esther, at the second feast, we'll see in a couple of chapters, will re reveal that she is a Jew. 
Mordecai only tells people he is a Jew because he didn't want to bow down to Haman. So they were forced. Now, that's not necessarily the problem or the question that I have. The question is, how do they honor Jewish laws and cultural traditions as Jews while all of this was going on and still keeping their nationality a secret? In some ways, it's hard to believe that they were keeping kosher with all of the laws while all of this is taking place and still staying hidden. And so in some ways, we could look at this story in two options. We either see Esther and Mordecai as endorsing and trying to use the pagan system to save their people, or we could see Esther and Mordecai as simply not being an observant Jew, and they were forced into a situation that they did not want. I think for me, the focus is not about finding the line and where they are. I think... It's not so much about are they sinning because they are not obviously observant Jews or are they sinning because they are somewhat endorsing the Persian government. I would say let us look at the positive side that God is in control, that God is using these men and women to orchestrate the saving and protection of his people. Again, thinking of Daniel and Esther, in so many ways they are similar. They're in a place that was not their home. They were taken captive. They were taken without their consent, and they were forced to serve a king that was not their king and was not a king that served their God. But in some ways, they were different. Daniel made a stand from day one not to eat certain foods. Esther, we're not told anything of the sort. She simply seems that she ate everything. Daniel prayed when he wasn't supposed to. We're never really told that Esther even prays at all. Daniel ultimately reads the Scriptures and would seem to be observant of the Jewish laws and activities, and really the only thing that Esther does is she fasts, and when it comes to it, it seems that it's in preservation for herself, not so much for her people. All of this to say, who is right and who is wrong? Personally, I don't think that's the right question to be asking in this context. The question that we should be asking is, is God in control? Is God on the throne? Is He the one that has the plan? It's not about who is right or who is wrong. It's about He is the one that is in control. He is the one that is ultimately protecting His people regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the situation that things are in. So my encouragement to us this week is as we go out, and again, kind of thinking back to that idea of communion and remembering the Lord. Have we remembered Him? Are we remembering that He is on the throne? Are we remembering that He is the one that is in control? Again, not taking away from our free will and our choice and that balance there, but ultimately He's the one guiding us into these things. Lord, I thank You for this day. Lord, I thank You for this opportunity. Father, I thank You so much that we get to come before You and worship you in spirit and in truth. Father, I pray that you'd be with us now. We thank you in your son's name. Amen.